we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we are here with author Christopher Buhlman to talk about his latest novel, The Black-Tongued Thief. You know, Hello, I, I don't know where to go with that, you know? Black tongue. I mean, most of us have pink tongue, so, I mean, this is going to be interesting because, you know, maybe there are pinks and purples and reds and yellows and who knows what other colored tongues. But anyways. I once heard uh, of a man with a worm tongue. Ooh, yes. Oh, hey. Ooh, there's there's a reference. Ooh, there's a great reference. Know. Yes. I mean, the really cool thing, um, I, I love the pitch on the book. Um, on the cover, it says, your smallest mistake could become your biggest adventure. Um, so, Let's jump in. I'm not going to do some fancy diatribe in our intro like I normally do. We've already kind of just jumped into this. So tell us a little bit about the book and how the smallest mistake could become the biggest adventure. Well, first of all, I want to say that 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 excellent slogan is the brainchild of my editor, Lindsay Hall, who is, uh, I think she's only like 29 years old, and she is this just genius with editing with ideas uh with encapsulating ideas um nice so yeah no she's she's amazing to work with um and the book takes off the starting point of the book is an ambush there's a, a guy who's a thief and he's heavily indebted to his thieves guild and he's taken up as a highwayman uh briefly and he's waiting uh for a traveler to come by the leader of the group has them pounce on this person, even though this our guy, Kinch, has the feeling that this is maybe not the best person to attack. He's got the sense this person has got magic. Um, they're certainly dressed to fight, and uh, they get a lot more than they can handle. But he ends up taking up with this individual, um, and that becomes the adventure. Nice. I like how you start off with an ambush. I mean... Yeah, it's generally when we see a fantasy novel, um, or even in, we'll say D and D, uh, it always starts at a tavern or somewhere quiet and peaceful, and you're just starting it off right in the thick of it. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, um, this is not my first rodeo, book-wise. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've been, I've, I've actually just made the leap from uh, horror to fantasy. I've got five oh. horror novels out there. So I've been trying to learn more and more about pacing, about how to start things in the action. And, you know, it's, never, it's not like anybody ever hands you, hands you a, a lifetime achievement degree and says, you now know everything you need to know about writing novels. Congratulations. Everything you do will be perfect. Yes. It, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So uh, I really enjoy experimenting and trying different tones, different paces. One critic called me protean and I had to look that up. Love it. <laughs> so, so you mentioned, you know, you've made this jump from horror across into fantasy. What was the catalyst for this grand experiment? What is it that inspires you to, to try this? And what then created that foundational idea for this book? Yeah, well, um, I was working with uh, Penguin Random House for those first five novels. And, you know, to be honest, the I'd gotten into a bit of a spiral. It's something that's easy uh, for an author to do. My first novel, Those Across the River, kind of came out great guns. And when I asked how it's doing, you know, that first year, my editor at Penguin, Tom Colgan, was like, it is exceeding our expectations for a first novel. It's doing well. So it was great. 
he said, uh, what do you want to write for your second novel? And uh, I had really enjoyed the historical research process that I was involved with, with those across, because it's set in 1935. So I thought, all right, where do I want to spend a year to a year and a half historically? So I decided to set the next horror novel in medieval France. And it's set during the Black Death in 1348. Um, it's called Between Two Fires. And it imagines that the Black Death was the first volley in a new war between heaven and hell, right? But because it's because the book is very much a hybrid, I mean, it's it's not exactly historical fiction. It's not exactly fantasy. It's not exactly horror. It's even got some themes of exploring questions of, of religion in it. Um, the idea of being, uh, you know, a Christian soldier, which was something that sort of didn't dawn on Western humanity until the the Christians Christianized Vikings, but Vikings Vikingized Christianity, right? That's when you get the Crusades and all that. Um, yeah. But that book didn't uh, it didn't sell particularly well. The reviews were nice, but it just it it you know it didn't it didn't sell the way they'd hoped. And when that kind of thing happens, then other bookstores. And will not necessarily stock it on their shelves, and you end up end up in this spiral. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Penguin Penguin was acquired by Penguin Random House, and there were some managerial changes, and they wanted to, you know, move some furniture around. So, um, rather than writing another horror novel and seeking another publisher with that, my agent said, "What do you like to write besides horror? What do you like to read besides horror?" And I said, "I love the hell out of fantasy." <laughs> she said. Can you write, you, you want to write a fantasy book? And I said, yes, I do. So um, that was sort of the origin story of the Black Tongue Thief. Um, mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to write about thieves too. I always liked them. I haven't played role-playing games for 30 years. Um, mm -hmm. I played D&D &D like every other card-carrying nerd back in the 80s. And uh, But right about 19, I sort of knew I was spending so much time on it I'd, ne I'd never become a writer if i just kept dming so yeah. uh yeah i put all my energy into that stuff absolutely love it and and it's great to come from a pedigree like that as well especially to be able to go and begin to develop your craft in other genres and then come home to roost a little so to speak to be able to really delve back into some of those those worlds that i imagine you've held in your head for a long time in some cases yes. what were some of those inspirations or some of those things that brought you into fantasy to begin with and maybe what are some of the things that have carried through with you as pillars of your writing style and, and of your exploration? Well one of the things I discovered in the horror writing field was that when I got closer to fantasy I started having a better time. Like I really enjoyed writing Between Two Fires because we're dealing with you know a medieval milieu and I, I, I just enjoy medieval arms and armor and and you know, feudal history and all of that sort of thing. Um, but also my third novel, The Necromancer's House, um, is about a guy who's a recovering alcoholic living in upstate New York, hiding, hoping Baba Yaga doesn't discover him because he stole some <laughs> from her back during the Soviet era, right? So um, it's about magic. It's a little, it's sort of in the same lane as like the magicians or um, uh, Dresden. So nice. it would, would be of a piece with that stuff, but it's a bit more, it's about as, it's probably about as dark as the magicians, darker than Dresden. Um, 
but I had to invent a magic system for it. And uh, I had great fun doing that. I, I, I really love the idea that magic always costs something. Um, so that's very heavily in the Necromancer's house, but it's also, it's also in the Black Tongue Thief. I think you'd find the magic systems between those very different novels compatible. I absolutely love that as a foundation. <clears throat> One of the things that I bring into my campaigns all the time is the idea that anything is possible, but everything comes at a price, right? Like yeah. You've got to find that patron, you've got to find that source of power, or you've got to sacrifice something real and important, maybe even something that you don't see or that you don't know yet. I, exactly. I, I love that. Like in, how, like in, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, well, like in the Necromancer's house, the guy, his name is Andrew Blankenship, right? And he's hmm. he's in his 50s now. But he looks 35-ish because he's constantly running this low-grade spell that keeps him looking good. And this, the cost of the spell grows exponentially as he gets older and it gets harder to look 35, right? Hmm. And he doesn't even realizing that the low-grade defensive spells he put on his house are draining and are, are running out of gas because he's vain. Um, so this leaves him vulnerable when he's finally found. That's awesome. It's a very Dorian Gray shift. You know, I, I like that a lot. That that's excellent. And in addition to, so, so you've written, you've written horror and you've set it in historical fictional settings as well as, and, and now you've written fantasy, yeah. uh, but that's not all you've done. Uh, you, you've also, so I'm a horror fan and I'm also like a film and television fan and uh, you did an episode of the resurrected show Creep Show. Yeah, I did. I wrote uh, I wrote one called The Man in the Suitcase. That's right. Now, now, how was that? I mean, you've written plays before, but this is a screenplay now. Uh, how how was that experience different for you than authoring, uh, say, Across the River or Between Two Fires? Oh, it's it's a whole whole different skill set. You know, like I, I took up writing plays before I'd ever finished a novel. Um, I wrote a bunch of short plays in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I wrote a couple of full-length plays in the mid-aughts. Um, I think that was a good apprenticeship uh, to be a novelist, learning how to write dialogue. Um, but it's a very different thing. And I didn't just come right out of the gate and, you know, sort of fart out this creep show episode I, I you know I've been wanting to break into television writing for some time so I actually uh I have a, a book to film agent um Sean Daly out in New York with a it's Hotch, Hotchkiss Daly and Associates and uh, I've been work, working with him for a bit I've, I've been working trying to develop a I wrote a pilot for those across the river that's in development um but I also wrote a pilot for Between Two Fires, which hasn't gone anywhere yet. Um, and I am now developing The Lesser Dead, my fourth novel, uh, into a podcast for a company called Ooh. Echoverse. Nice, nice. Yeah, I got all the merch. Um, <laughs> but it, that's a lot of fun. And it's it's been kind of been a, been a full-time job since October, um, but we're, it's... It's it's really a it's really a blast. So to answer your question more briefly, it is incredibly different, but it's something I like about as much. So in that episode, the man in the suitcase, uh, it is described as a nifty little tale of comeuppance. What was the inspiration behind that episode? A lot of my horror comes from an image. 
And I just got the image of this guy bent up in a suitcase and what would happen if you went to the luggage carousel, right? At the airport and you brought home your very heavy suitcase. And when you got home, there was a dude in it and <laughs> he was talking to you. Oh, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> They say write what you know, so I'm assuming that uh... <laughs> art imitates life. <laughs> well, that's that's fascinating. Um, so, so let's uh, let's kind of like boomerang back a little bit to Black Tongue Thief. So you make the leap from horror to fantasy, and we talked about like what what caught you know the catalyst for that. Um, what were some of your inspirations? You know, when, when we're digging into certain genres, we we have inspirational sources and we have sort of like the vision in our mind that like reflects that genre uh, and of course yours is unique to others but what kind of inspirations fueled your understanding of, of the fantasy genre and how it influenced black tongue thief well i'm going to make a confession here and that is that i do better with fantasy than science fiction in part because it is easier for me to imagine the worlds that are that are being portrayed most of the time, depending on what kind of fantasy it is. Um, for example, I find that my favorite fantasy novels are sort of in that second world pigeonhole, you know, things that, like I enjoy Guy G uh, Gabriel Kay because he's there writing the Lions of Al-Rasan and he, it's, it's, it's basically Moorish Spain that you're, that you're experiencing. I really enjoy Game of Thrones for much the same reason, you know, you can, you can sort of recognize, if not individual countries, you can, you can certainly pick out historical events and things like the chain across the Blackwater being like the chain that they used when Constantinople fought against uh, Mehmet II. And uh, they put a chain across the Golden Horn and Mehmet couldn't get his navy in and it looked like he maybe thwarted, but he just cut down trees and they they rolled their navy across the land to the other side mm. in the act. Um, I like, but I like fantasy where you can hang, where I can, where I can hang my hat on it and sort of already have a head start to seeing what's happening. So then how do you determine then, you know, to, you, you've got the familiar, at what point do you diverge into the fantastic? Yeah, well, the familiar is really just a, just a starting off point. Um, I, you know, it, well, it depends. It depends on, on. For me, it is anyway. I know. I know that there are some authors where it's really quite where it's really quite close to to what's going on. I'll tell you, one of my favorite fantasy authors is Joe Abercrombie. Um, I absolutely love the First Law series, but even more than the first three books of the First Law series, I really, really love. Um, the novel Best Served Cold, which is in the same world, but it's set in the, the fictional country of Styria, uh, which is basically Italy. And it's Italy circa, I would say, 1480, 1500. Sort of the same technology level you'd see and the same kind of people running around that you'd see in, the, in that old Rutger Hauer movie, um, Flesh and Blood, if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that. That's one of, that's one of my favorites. Um, but it's, it's talk, he's talking about Italian mercenaries, basically. Um, and you have these different city-states that are very similar in their ways to Florence and Venice and Milan and Rome all struggling. And you get this mercenary um, named Monza Mercato. And 
I love what he does, making the name sound very plausibly Italian, but it's not Italian. You know, it's he. I, that I love that stuff. So where do you, where do you stop, and where do you start? Yeah, um, I have my world has non-human uh, races in it. Um, there are goblins, and. I drew a little bit from my, my my sort of horror brain for them because they're pretty nasty. And I dealt with them pretty naturalistically. Like I was thinking, well, so if you if you're gonna have goblins, what are what are they what are they like? You know, what do they physically look like? How do they how do they move? What are they like? Um, and I imagine them having sharp teeth, almost like river fish, but they've got articulated tongues um, so that they don't bite their own tongues off, right? That's gnarly. Yeah, and but because they've got these like plated tongues, their consonants are different. They they sound almost insectile when they speak because there's a lot of hissing and clacking um, because of the apparatus in, in their mouth. Um, yeah, so there's 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 an example of a of a jumping off point from history. That sounds amazing. You know, one of the oh, other things that's absolutely i'm going to i mean every the deeper and deeper we get into this we're like yeah 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 i'm just excited <laughs> about this and and the other thing that's really clear is as as we are talking addressing these questions and as you're taking the time to really think through them is it's clear that you go to great lengths to be well educated to be well versed to be thinking about the way that you're going to introduce your story, the way that you're structuring things, the way that you have to start from the known and move into the unknown. What are some of the struggles that you find as you are trying to write this book or you know, write these stories that you already have all of that base knowledge in your head, things that you have spent hours researching and figuring out and learning about and being invested in. What are some of the things that you find you need to do to help to engage an audience and get them to that kind of minimum knowledge level. That is actually something, you know, we all have things, whatever our craft is, we all have things we feel pretty confident in that we, we you know, we're reasonably good at and things that we know we struggle with. And I'll be perfectly honest that one of the areas in which I struggle, and this is true for television writing too, is in plotting. Um, I don't, I don't like laying out a complex plot, a complex outline. I really like getting to know characters and let the, and let the characters dictate what happens. And that is easier to do in a novel where you have uh, an unlimited amount of real estate to burn. Mm -hmm. But when you're writing for something like television, you, you've every, every syllable, every second can, can count, has to count, yeah. it has to be counted. Um, so I struggle with that. Where I, where I find I, I don't seem to struggle is, and I mean, this is for you to determine, but um, I really enjoy the craft of, of giving out knowledge in a way that doesn't hamper development, doesn't hamper pacing. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I really like shaking up whether you learned something in a song or whether you are told something directly by somebody or if you just find a relic or whatever it is. Hmm. For example, um, I didn't, one of, the, one of the features of this world is that these goblin wars were awful. They were, <laughs> they were their World War I, um, only even maybe worse. So that when the goblins 
invaded several kingdoms at the same time. They sort of just burst out from underground. It's like nobody knew what was going on with there, there were so many of them. They, there are theories about where they may have come from. There was the big calamity back in the past. Did they come through a breach in the world? that Nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. But they exploded. And mankind won the first war called the Knights War. Um, they were able to, the, the invasion was on a smaller scale than it was later. They drove them back with armored cavalry because goblins are only about three, three to four feet tall and they're light. Mm-hmm. And they weren't able to stand up to charges. But there's magic in this world, as I've said, and these two different species are strong at different kinds of magic. And one of the things the goblins can do, we discovered to our horror, was brew plagues. And they didn't want to wipe us out, or maybe they couldn't. They wanted, they like to eat us. So they came up with an equine plague called the Stumbles, and all of the horses died. So by the time we get to the world we're in now, this is actually a, a medieval tech world with no horses. Huh, I love it. That, that's actually perfect because it leads into another question that I had is that, you know, because you start a lot of the times in the known, what are some of the things that you do to take some of the tropes and ideas and, you know, themes and things that people already have in their head and begin to turn them? I mean, obviously goblins are considerably more developed in your canon than in many others in terms of culture and nuance. There's clearly some scientific uh, knowledge or magical knowledge there that's continuing to grow and their physiology is slightly different. But what are some of the other ways that when you're considering elements within your story that you find ways to change or evolve them beyond what maybe an average reader would think in their head? Well, one thing that I did besides one, one way in which society changed a great deal was that, okay, so the first war was the Knight's War. The second war was called the Thresher's War. And that one went considerably worse for humanity because you, you, didn't, you, didn't, have, you didn't have horses. We were much less mobile. Um, so we marched, at, we marched out there, took ox carts or whatever, and tried to march armies at them. And... Um, there were a lot more of them this time and they had learned from us. They had learned our tactics too. And they shredded us. It was horrible. And they started must they started musters in every village and they started culling all of all of the males. All of them were going and not coming back uh, often. And it got so bad that for by the time now that we were inflicting casualties on them too, so they they withdrew. They their life cycle is a bit shorter, so they had another wave ready before we did. Um, and when they came at us in the daughters' war, guess who fought? <laughs> um, there and and humanity was ultimately victorious. So that was quite a brutal one too. But one of the things that happened culturally is that you will not find men between the ages of 21 and like early 40 or or 50s, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a generation and a half of men is gone, all all but gone. There's a few, but they're generally missing fingers, goblins bite. Um, But... And, and women have grown into uh, 
a, a more equal in some in some way some, in some ways a dominant um, posture in society. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was so fun to do with this book was when I'm writing incidental characters. You know, if you meet a town, you meet a guard at the city gates. You know, you, your first thought from the you know your sort of patriarchal and historical context is that it's going to be a, a dude, a big dude. But no, probably not. Um, probably a woman, bartender, probably a woman. Um, mm-hmm. One of the roles men find uh, for themselves easily is prostitute. Hmm. I love it. Hmm. And there's, I, I, I want to ask one more question before I pass it back to, to Krebs or Daniel. Sure. Um, because it's clear that there's a lot of thought that's going into this. And one of the other things that you've consistently been saying as you're describing the events is you're saying we, we, referring to we, the humans, right? I'm assuming. But um, that seems to, at, at least from an editorial level, right, imply some level of, of ownership and investment on the reader's part to be able to see particular viewpoints and particular themes. Do you find that as you're going through this, you are consciously trying to imbue themes into your work? Or is it that once you get to the end, do you look back and see that a lot of those things begin to crop up more naturally just because of good world building? I think it's a combination. I mean, I, I certainly wanted to explore themes of survival, themes of allegiance. Who do, you, who do you ultimately owe your allegiance to? Is it to your species? Is it to your guild? Um, is, it, is it to your family? Is it to those you know who are close to you? You know, where, who, who do you, on what hill do you die? You know? Yeah. Um, but you remind, if I, can, if I can back up for a second, you reminded me of a thought that I was, because this is, this is what happens in, in good conversations is like, oh, I had a thought <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about, but I got up on something else. We, <laughs> I just talked about that. Um, so I was talking about the, what I call the lore dump. And this is what you do in horror. You see this in horror all the time. It's like, oh man, it's a horrible thing here. Well, actually it's the demon Ookskablat. And what you need for that guy is, you know, and, and some old fucker tells, right? Some old person tells you <laughs> what you need to do to take care of the monsters or whatever. Um, it's still gonna be awkward in horror, but like, like I said, I really like it in fantasy. I like being able to thread this stuff all the way through. And one thing I did, for example, they're in a tavern at one point. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman singing up there. And because I wanted to, I wanted to teach the reader, because this isn't a movie, you know, maybe you listen to the audiobook. But um, so we don't call it mankind anymore because it's really not mankind exactly. So it's become fashionable to call it kind, K-Y-N-D. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, how do I differentiate for the reader that it's not pronounced kind? So I wrote a song in which uh, a woman meets a, a mermaid out or a merman out in the water and she's and they're, and they're rhyming the words kind and twinned and thinned so you learn that Ooh, way clever i love it that's awesome that's yeah, fantastic no uh, i mean that, that's a great way to be able to teach your your reader so because i mean how many times have you read a book and you're like how do i pronounce that name or how do i pronounce that word you know, and then you go to the author and they're like, well, what do you think it is? Uh, you know, because they're not going to give you that answer. But right. I like how you're doing that. You're teaching them. This is the proper way to say it. 
so that as they get down the line, you know, if they're having a discussion with another reader, they're not going to be arguing over the pronunciation of the word. That's always bugs me. Right. And I, I try also, to make that process, that learning process, painless and fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of the other things I really appreciate about specifically what you just mentioned is that it's, it's subtle. It isn't spoon feeding of adding a line of dialogue of a character connect, correcting another character's pronunciation. Yeah. It's it's much more ingrained because, too, again, if you're in that world, it's going to be something you just know. There's no reason that you'd have to explicitly call it out per se. Yeah, it's beautiful. But to get back to what you were asking me about about um, you know we're taking this from the from the viewpoint of humanity. It is written in the first person, so that. Kinch is our narrator, and he is uh, Galtish, which is roughly analogous to, to a, a, I don't think of it as always Irish. I think of it as this is a lost Celtic branch, like if mm. there was yet another besides the Welsh, besides the Scots, <laughs> the Bretons. What if it, so now you also have the Galtish, they're just in a different world. It's like, so he's, uh, so I imagine him with a brogue. You know, whenever whenever I'm reading this, and it's really he's 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 he was pretty entertaining to write. I hope he is as entertaining to read. I you know I have a couple of questions along those lines too because I love asking authors a couple of questions every single time I talk to a, a new author. One of them is was there was there a character for which you uh, were writing that was just so natural and it was your favorite and it was a part of you that you love to express on page. Uh, was there a character that just was, uh, it was exceptionally easy to write because it just flowed from you? Yeah, well, that would be Kinch. And that's why, uh, that's why I chose to give him the, the chore and the privilege of telling the story. He awesome. Was, he was fun to write. I mean, the first, the, when I first sat down to write this ambush scenario, I did it in the more traditional third person. But and it was grim, and you know, I'm, I'm telling, I'm telling a really grim story here. I mean, we're talking about humanity's been largely wiped out by things that like to eat us, and um, there are no horses anymore because they're dead because the things that eat us killed them. And oh, by the way, the everything is really run by the thieves' guild, uh, um, and they've got their fingers in everything, you know. So it's horrible. And the way, the best way I could think of to mitigate that was to use my love of love of humor and uh, try to give us a narrator that was smart and had gallows humor and could could sort of anesthetize these darker parts of it for us and entertain us. Was there uh, a point in any of your of your books, um, in any of your stories, where? you know, you were, maybe you were struggling with some plot point. You were trying to figure out how do I transition from this beat to the next beat? And then you realized what the answer was and you hated that you had to do it, but you knew it had to be done. Ooh, not in this book. I can't, I can't think of one where it's like, Oh God, I got to go there. But I know what you're talking about. Cause I absolutely have had that in other books. Um, my second novel between two fires there's a point where I'm not going to be too spoilery here, but a little bit, there's a point where a major character dies and I didn't know it was coming. <laughs> I was writing it and there, there came, we came to this one point and I was like, Oh my God, we're going to lose this person now. I, 
I don't see any other way out of it. It just doesn't narratively make any sense given what they're faced with if they all survive. And I think this one's going to die and here's why. And I hate it. Dan has no clue what that is like. He is definitely <laughs> not experiencing that in the slightest. We've not talked about it on our previous episodes. I'm in the middle of doing that. No, I don't. Like, I, I'm three books in, and I have this character that I've loved, and, and now I'm at this point, I'm like, oh, crap, I have to kill a character. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> well, I, I love asking that question because all, all four of us in this conversation right now, we are various flavors of storytellers, yeah. whether it's whether it's authoring a book or, uh, you know, film and television uh, creation or uh, game design and game world building. It doesn't really matter. We're all we're all GMs. We're all telling stories. And uh, we have, I, I think, uh, a lot of storytellers, once they get started, there's always that comfort in realizing they're the creator i'm creating this thing and they're like i'm creating you know my story is this living breathing thing but the problem with living breathing things is they have a mind of their own and at some point every creator gets to that point where it's like this story needs to be told a certain way and the story is now dictating to me how this is going to go and if i stop it i will make it i will diminish it so I have to tell the story the way it's meant to be told, not necessarily the way that I want to tell it right at this very moment. And I think that that's something profound that a lot of authors, really good authors have that, have that moment, that epiphany of, I don't want to do this next thing, but I know it needs to be done. The closest, the closest I probably came in this novel, and it is something that I wanted to do once I figured out that it needed to be done, but I, it took, it was a process getting there. When I okay, so the person that's coming down the road when Kinch is laying in ambush is a knight named Galva, and she is what's called a birder, and or also called a raven knight because what? So they killed our horses, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things we're good at is in this magic system is uh, bone mixing, um, basically almost like gene splicing. Um, so we bred up what's called a war corvid, and it is a stag-sized, flightless raven. But you, you're, you're smart guys. You probably know how smart corvids are, and um, they can be trained to do remarkably complex things. Yes. Yeah. So you and and as a bonus, goblins are they they live underground. They're terrified of birds, even small ones. So now they're like, yeah, you kill our horses. You're going to love this. <laughs> yeah. I saw that when I was reading just, just the brief uh, blurb about the book, it's like stag sized ravens. I'm like, Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I think, I, I know we keep coming back to this point, but what you've done with like the goblins is really fascinating. Uh, there are, there are so many times when we fall into certain, sort of accepted tropes, you know, dwarves are inexplicably Scottish and, um, you know, and, and they, they all have beards running off of their, or, or braids running off of their chins, you know, and, um, and then elves are always these elongated, exceptionally gorgeous, typically British things. And then you've got like the humans who are not special. So they're just American, you know? And so it's just stuff like that. We, we always get into like these, these sort of like tropes. And so when you take goblins, 
um, even in my head, I imagine them as green, almost slimy in texture, but you've got them with like river fish teeth and articulated tongues, and they have um, an insectoid sound, you know, diphthongs in their language. I, and, and, and they brewed a plague as a weapon of mass destruction, but they didn't want to kill their food source. What you've done here is like so thoughtful and so creative. Was Have you had an idea, particularly for Black Tongue Thief, but it could be for any of your books. Have you had an idea that you really liked, but you had to scrap because it threw off pacing or it was just unnecessary in the end? And you're like, oh, I'm going to have to use that in the future, but not here. I've certainly, ha I've certainly had those. I think every book has some example of it, but I, I'm having trouble on the spot thinking of an example of it right now. Let's, let's if we can, let me bookmark that because I was, uh, I, I did that thread thing again. I was getting to another yes. point when I was talking about the War Corvids because I was really talking about Galva. And she is from, uh, uh, she is from Ispanthia, which uh, if you know your, if you know your Russian, Ispansky is how you say Spanish. Um, she's from Ispanthia, which is uh, a lost, a lost Latin, you know, Latin country. It's like if you if you put somewhere between Portugal and Spain and Catalonia, you would have Hispanthia, right? Mm -hmm. So I even I speak some Spanish. So I, I the, the language I've just adopted uh, Spanish a bit, um, but I also looked at Catalan and Portuguese to get something sort of in the same family when she speaks, you know. But uh, she's Hispanthian. They were really like the Spanish. They were really into horses. And um, it was a huge blow to them when, when they lost that. Um, so they, oh, another, another thing, the sort of foundational empire in this world isn't Rome. It's uh, called the Kesh. And Kesh is more analogous to uh, um, India. Mm. Um, so when you see old temples and stuff, they've got elephants on them and archers and things like that. So um, there is a sword art they practice that is that is based um, um, that is called Kalab Bajat and it's based on the Indian sword and shield um, uh, martial art. And uh, so so this was like an, a less popular uh, for many because of the horses for many years art or style, but it has risen and. Um, these bird knights were sort of at the at the forefront of that that coming back as an art form. So she's highly trained with sword and buckler, and she's and they have a they have a, a special a short short sword called a um, slang for it is a bull nutter. Um, it's basically <laughs> like a more elegant sayax, you know. So it's got that kind of angular look, but it's got a little bit of a curve to it too. Um, but anyway, so she's, I'm going, going into too much detail, but my point was, uh, <laughs> she's this, she's this of a knight, and she serves Dalgatha, the skinny woman, the goddess of death. But when I wrote the book the first time, she was not a she, she was a he. Mm. When I'm first writing, in the first draft of the book, Galva was a male. And I, I just, it was missing something. I just, I wasn't, you know, I would hear back from beta readers that that character felt a little generic and all of this. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I went, why is he a male? I've already established that the world has been, there aren't many males left. Why isn't this a woman? So I changed the character 
And I'm so grateful that it happened this way because, you know, I'm 52 years old. I'm set in my ways. I try to be as woke as I can about stuff, but I got habits and I got ways of thinking that I'm not always even aware of. So had I started off writing this book about a female knight, I might have femaled her in ways that I, you know, didn't need to or maybe didn't want to. But because I wrote it in this way, she's just a hard ass warrior and the gender isn't that relevant. That's awesome. Love it. Yeah. Now, I, I know we don't have too much time before Dan needs to close out the show here, but I do have one more question for you. Yeah. Um, and especially with that last statement talking about being more aware of the messages that you're sending and the way that you're writing and the, what you are communicating. Um, if there is one message that you would want your readers to take away, whether that's a lesson for them to apply in their lives or some truth that you have come to know for yourself, what is that message? Oh, I wasn't really trying to imbue it with an overarching message. I think that maybe the subtext of it is enjoy wonder. I had such a great time creating this world and I hope that people have a great time exploring it. And it's an important thing that people do, storytelling, as you guys all know. So enjoy story, man. Just enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's fantastic how, as we've grown up, we're pulled away from storytelling. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, this morning, I was just sitting there on my couch listening to my kids just developing this storyline, this massive storyline with their various different toys. You know, there were mermaids, there were transformers, there were uh, troll dolls, but they were all in, you know interacting within this world that the, you know my three kids were developing on the spot. There was no plotting it out; they were just going as it is. And it's, we're natural storytellers; we really are. But it seems like through school or uh, you know, our day jobs that's like drawn out of us. And it's like, throw it away. You don't need that. Focus on these things. Um, so the fact that you're a lot like me, where it's like, I want to be invested in the characters. I, I don't want to plot this out. And, you know, I have to do X, Y, Z by page something or other. Um, I just want the story to flow. I want it to be natural. And I want the characters to tell me how it is. So I love how you do that. Um, and I really wish there's some way we could get society to go back to that. I mean, we kind we slowly are. You're going to say something. Yeah, no, you you just reminded me. I mean, uh, one of the more important sort of mentors in my life was uh, or is a, a an entertainment director at a Renaissance festival, um, the Sterling Renaissance Festival in uh, up in West Central New York. A guy named Gary Izzo, and for many years I acted there playing variously in the Irish Highwayman. Uh -huh. Um, from Arlo, uh, you know, different characters. And he has these workshops. He's got books out. He's got a book out called The Art of Play. But he always talks in his workshops about how we forgot how to play. And that if you want to run interactive theater, one of the best ways is to teach the people coming through the gates of your, of your park how to play again and give them permission to play. He would teach us to do things like endow characters, you know, like, ah, oh, Mr. Smith, I just, it's you again. You're here with the bakery goods. Where's the bread? You know, um, but throwing assumptions, throwing endowments on people, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot like what you're talking about, you know, yeah. with your kids. 
you know, we, he, in those workshops, he gets us out there, you know, grown people in their twenties and thirties or whatever out there just playing games out in the woods. And it's, uh, as a, as a team building thing, but also just to free up our imaginations again. Yeah. No, I, I, I think we really missed the point with that. Uh, and that's awesome that that's what he does is has them play. Cause uh, you know, as adults, I think we walk into a Renaissance fair and it's like, okay, I'm going to shop. I'm going to look at these weirdos. Um, unless you're, you're people that, you know, not saying everyone's weirdos, but saying, you know, if you enjoy that, but a lot of the times we're just guarded. We can't say that we like those things. Um, and I, I really like how the culture has changed a lot. You know, it's growing up, man, if you said you love Dungeons and Dragons or like fantasy novels, you generally got pants, mm. you know, wedged <laughs> or thrown into a locker um now football you know the football players are saying yeah i love this stuff too i mean it's more acceptable now than it used to be which is great so it's not so awkward but it's still it's still this borderline where it's like you know it's it's so weird that authors don't get paid well you know you know we're creating all this fantastic stuff um or even you know screenwriters but and, and nothing to, against the actors themselves but you think you know, they're the ones creating the content for them to write, but yet they're still probably the lower paid individuals. It's, it's this weird dynamic that we've created. Uh, Cause back in the day, like with Shakespeare, he was a big deal because he was a writer. You know? Yeah. Man, he was making money. He yeah. was, that was a commercial enterprise for him. Do you guys know what my day job is? No. no. I still work well, uh, uh, you know, before this, wonderful year that we've just enjoyed so much yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I work at renaissance festival still uh, i have a character called christoph the insulter and people pay me to verbally abuse their friends love it so, oh my god <laughs> and it's lucrative if you're good at it and i kind of am so <laughs> you know, that reminds me of the uh, the food chain dicks you know you go there to be insulted that is the whole point they make paper hats and say insulted things and people love that you know and if you're good at it you're you're, you're gold so that is fantastic that that is your character um i love it uh so I, you know thank you so much for your time today it, it was yeah. wonderful uh I, this is a fantastic book a brilliant twist to the tropes um you know it's been wonderful having you on uh, so for our listeners, this book is, will be released on May 5th. So you have plenty of time to the 25th, add May 25th, May 25th, excuse me. I was looking at the wrong date. Um, it'll be available in hardback, ebook, as well as audio. So you right. will be able to pick that up. Um, I'll be the uh, voice actor doing the audio as well. Oh, oh that's awesome. That's, that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, if you if you get a chance, just check out, go on Audible and just try a sample uh, of The Lesser Dead because I read that that one as well. So okay. I really like doing that. There will, you go. So will you, you be affecting accents? Oh yes. Yes. Thank you. Very <laughs> nice. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, guys. Pick up this book, guys, because it's going to be fantastic. Remember, the smallest mistake will become your biggest adventure, and yeah. We're not going to say that this book is a mistake picking it up, but it will be an adventure. So with that said, <laughs> we're out of here. Thanks a lot, guys. Absolutely. And Dungeon Crawlers, no matter where you are or what you do, tell your story, whatever may come. And wherever you are, pull a Christopher Buhlman and be epic and don't suck. Remember, 
the force will be with you. Always. 